The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Our guest today is Professor Deborah Dinner, a legal historian whose scholarship examines the interaction between social movements, political culture, and legal change. Deborah Dinner's research focuses in particular on how law responds to vulnerabilities that derive from familial and employment relationships at home and at work. Thank you so much for taking time for our interview today, Debbie. My pleasure, yeah. Why did you decide to join Emory Law and how did being there um, influence your career trajectory and the research that you ended up doing? Um, I came to Emory when Martha Feynman reached out to me and asked um, if I would be interested in being considered in in a search they were doing related to vulnerability studies. Um, I did not and identify, and I I still don't identify primarily as a vulnerability theorist, in part because I'm a legal historian, but I was attracted to the idea of vulnerability theory uh, for two reasons. One is that I had greatly admired um, Professor Feynman's work on dependency and care um, and used it in my own scholarship, both by seeing it as a primary source in itself, because I was studying the history of legal feminist ideas and advocacy, So, I, and um, as a, a useful theory in, in itself. And so specifically, I found the idea of inevitable dependency very attractive, um, and the, her critique of autonomy, and um, her work on the limits of anti-discrimination law and sex neutrality in the family law context. So so I found the position really attractive and I can talk more later in our discussion, but I was writing a book that I'm still just putting the finishing touches on about um, the evolution of sex equality as a legal principle in the late 20th century. And some of the conclusions I had already reached, um, vulnerability theory helped give me a language to talk about and, and uh, were very simpatico. So um, that really interested me. And then also um, the legal, the robustness of the legal history um, program at Emory, both in the law school with scholars like Mary Dujiak and um, in the history department uh, attracted me because that's my primary intellectual identity. So um, I, I, uh, I found both those programs incredibly robust, incredibly supportive, both in terms of um, professional mentorship and friendship um, and an intellectually nurturing and enriching uh, location in which to build new relationships and, and uh, continue my research trajectory. Can you tell me a bit more about how vulnerability theory uh, helped provide a language for you to discuss some of the conclusions that you had already reached? Yeah, my book is not um, written in a vulnerable vulnerability theory register. It's, it's a legal history, so it's primarily narrative. Um, so I don't discuss the theory directly in the book, but it helped me think about some of the 
historical conclusions I was reaching in the book. So let me tell you a little bit about it and, and what the argument is, and, I, and then I'll illustrate where vulnerability theory fits in. Um, so the book is called um, The Sex Equality Dilemma, Work, Family, and Legal Change in Neoliberal America. And it traces the evolution of sex equality ideals and law from the passage of the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 through the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993 and beyond. And the book's central argument is that feminist legal activists pursued two goals. One was employment opportunity and individual freedom and the end of gender stereotyping under law. And then the second goal was um, robust welfare state supports for social reproduction. And social reproduction is the caregiving labor and resources that is necessary to replicate the next generation and sustain individuals across the life force. Um, and what I argue in the book is that feminists made more strides towards sex discrimination law, even though it's not, <laughs> we don't live in a perfect world, than they did towards the welfare state supports they sought like universal childcare, universal temporary disability insurance, paid parental leave, maternity leave, paid maternity leave, et cetera. Um, and the reason being is because of the dynamics of market and social conservatism. And so the basic conclusion of, of the, the book is that sex discrimination law is, is neither an, enough to reconcile work-family conflict, nor is it um, enough to support social reproduction. And I show that actually somewhat perversely sex discrimination law as it was instituted, not as feminists imagined it, but as it was instituted intertwined with some neoliberal trends to deregulate the labor standards in the United States and to cut back on welfare protections. Um, and so universal vulnerability theory was helpful to me in thinking about the limits of sex discrimination law because Vulnerability is a heuristic that asks how can the state support um, both individuals and families and institutions. So one way I use that is how can the state support social reproduction? Um, and so vulnerability theory more specifically was, was useful to me in thinking about two things. One is um, some of the ways in which concepts of specific vulnerability or particularized vulnerability, which is not universal vulnerability as Martha Feynman articulates it, are used um, to, to legitimate more narrow welfare state responses to social policy problems. Um, and then the second way it was useful is thinking about um, the universality of some dimensions of the women's movement's response. Um, so let me give you two examples. So, when thinking about something like the conflict between reproductive health and certain dangerous workplaces, like workplaces that use um, uh, toxic chemicals, one response of employers in the 1970s was to exclude women of childbearing age writ large to minimize their tort liability. So what they did was they thought about particularized vulnerability, that women and female reproductive systems in particular are vulnerable. Um, and they use that to legitimate um, a discriminatory response instead of a kind of welfareist response that would expand labor standards and create more safe workplaces for everyone. Um, so that's just one particularized example, but um, it, 
Martha's theory helped me think about um, in more analytic terms, some of the history and the ways in which employers and business groups were using particularized notions of vulnerability to limit their legal liability and limit the, the, the proactive steps they had to take to create safe labor conditions and good work conditions for everyone. Um, and then the second, let me give you another example. Um, here I talk a little bit about remedies and, and what did labor and socialist feminists and radical feminists pursue as opposed to um, feminists who were only interested in equal treatment under law. Um, so in the early 20th century, in part as a, a um, effort to circumnavigate Lochnerism at the time, which was kind of a free market ideal that opposed labor regulations. Um, states passed female-specific protective labor standards. So laws that limited work hours, laws that guaranteed minimum wages, laws that guaranteed um, some benefits like breaks or restroom facilities, but also were restrictive in ways that became anachronistic, like setting uh, limits on the weight women could lift. And in the late 20th century, after the passage of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits employment discrimination on the basis of sex and other protected identity characteristics, the, the legality of sex-based labor laws came into question because they discriminated on their face. They classified females as different from male employees. Um, and one response to that was to eliminate these laws, which really did constrain women's opportunity and many, many individual working women seeking greater economic opportunity took that approach, as did some national feminist activists like those in the National Organization for Women, um, especially professional women who saw longer work hours as a source of opportunity and advancement rather than just drudgery and toil. Um, and uh, many scholars, not all, but many both historians and legal scholars have really celebrated the end of maternalist labor standards as the dawn of a new era of sex equality. But labor and socialist feminists I discovered were doing something different. They were using equal treatment under law as a catalyst or the idea of sex equality as a catalyst to augment, hide and expand labor protections. So instead of saying, let's get rid of the sex-based labor law, what they were saying was, let's pass new labor laws that apply to both males and female um, employees. And so they were trying to marry civil rights era commitments to anti-discrimination with New Deal and progressive era commitments to labor protection. Um, and when I encountered Martha's theory, this idea of universal vulnerability helped um, legitimate for me what I was, the conclusion I was coming to about this really being the most transformative and um, kind of just solution to the conflict between employment opportunity and labor protection. Um, and so that's just one, one example, but a pivotal one in my book um, about both how discourses of particularized vulnerability end up distorting justice and how discourses of universal vulnerability um, can, in certain instances, advance a more robust justice project. Um, and so I found it, um, as I kind of work, continued to work on the book over probably too long time, that 
um, to, I found a fertile intellectual ground for me to be in a, a location in a community of scholars who were sympathetic um, to some of those arguments and sympathetic to my historical interpretation. And I've written a more theoretical uh, piece um, in the Festschrift um, issue of the Emory Law Journal, um, the kind of symposium issue devoted to um, Martha and her work that um, takes some of the insights from my book and puts them in a more theoretical language and, and kind of um, highlights uh, the contribution that the empirical work my book can, can do for vulnerability studies. So um, uh, that, that piece um, is entitled uh, vulnerability as a category of historical analysis. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you. Mm -hmm. What do you hope that your research and work will contribute to the academy as a whole? And how do you want it to? Do you want it to impact social policy? Yeah, I, I obviously. Um, would like it to impact social policy. Um, I don't write in a, in a register that's immediate, like a policy initiative type, type register. So I don't kind of write, this is what the new legislation should look like, ABC. Um, but but I, what I hope the work um, creates is a closer connection between um, thinking about capitalism, thinking about labor and thinking about feminism. And that's not entirely novel. Um, historians such as Catherine Turk and Alice Kessler Harris and Nancy McLean have thought about that. And, and feminist theorists like Eileen Boris, for example, have thought about that. Um, but I would like to play my part in extending that conversation so that when in the popular media, people think about um, feminism, they don't only think about kind of either advancement like lean-in feminism, nor do they only think about issues of sexual harassment and violence, um, although those are incredibly important, but they think about welfare state issues. And in particular, they think about um, economic justice issues related to workers as feminist issues. Um, so I'd like my work to um, contribute to a gender, centering gender in their analysis of the economy um, and um, making economic issues conversely central to feminism. Um, and, you know, one way to think about that is the recent debate about the um, infrastructure bills and is should care be a um, central part of what our infrastructure investment in the United States. Um, so home health care, child care, um, education, public education in particular. Um, and, and so I, th I hope that generations of students in particular, if, they, if I'm so lucky to have some of them read portions of my book, will think about issues of feminism um, and issues of economic justice uh, together. How have you seen research and rhetoric in your field change over the past five years? Um, I think because of, well, maybe a couple different trends. Um, I think because since it, this is longer than five years, but in the last decade or so, since the um, great, uh, you know, economic recession and depression in 2008, um, there's been a turn 
back in historical scholarship towards the history of capitalism and to um, centering material concerns um, theoretically in the center of historical scholarship. And that's true in legal history as well. Um, so uh, that is one shift. Um, in feminist theory, in the legal academy, I don't think there's quite been enough of that. Um, I think there's a lot of focus on issues of violence and issues of identity. And I think we need to connect both of those more to economic justice issues. Um, although there's important scholarship on the, on the fact that sex harassment is not only about misdirected sexual desire, but about economic justice and struggles between men and women over um, access to economic opportunity in the workplace. Um, so, um, I, do, I do see some trends in, in the direction that I'd like to, to see the scholarship go, but not entirely. Um, and I, th you know, I think that vulnerability theory has both become increasingly um, popularized, but also that there's still um, very much a conflict between or a tension between thinking about um, gender justice in identitarian terms and thinking about it in, in universality. Um, the kind of universal terms that uh, Martha Feynman's work um, suggests. And, uh, you know, in part because I'm, uh, in part because of my personality um, and in part because I'm a legal historian primarily, um, I think that I often can reconcile both positions. Um, I don't think they're inherently in tension. Um, I, although I do think that, um, uh, if you stick to one set of questions, you know, you'll arrive at a different, a different answer. I, it's not that I don't think there's um, different pathways that the both kinds of approaches lend themselves to, but I don't think they're inherently irreconcilable personally. But I, I'm not very vested in uh, um, absolute theoretical positions uh, uh, because my work at legal history is very committed to nuance, so, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, Debbie. Can you tell me a bit more about why those two positions are often seen as irreconcilable and why they're not to you? Yeah, let me try to think about that in a, in a specific context. Um, let's think about maybe one example and then maybe a second one. So thinking about the problems, say, of the lack of state support for social reproduction or the lack of state support for caregiving. Um, one way of thinking about that is in terms of a gender justice problem that males and females need to distribute caregiving more equally within the family. Um, so that's an identitarian type of analysis, um, one that was fairly prevalent amongst a certain strand of feminism in the, in the 1970s. So think of like, um, Pat Maynardi's early 1970s famous work, The Politics of Housework, that called on women to insist that their male partners um, divide the caregiving labor more equally. Um, so the limits of that are even if males and females, you know, 50-50 divided the caregiving, and now in a world of more um, broad uh, gender norms and, and in a world where we've moved a, a little bit away from heteronormativity, you know, think about all partners, um, 
dividing care or even multiple people dividing care more equally. Yes, that would be a huge step towards justice, um, but what it wouldn't do is socialize responsibility across society for care, right? So, you, you know, you could have men and women losing their jobs if they didn't take parenting leave um, at the same rate, but that wouldn't be a state or a system in which employers supported care and gave leave to everyone. So another way of thinking about this is what does society owe caregivers? And that's kind of more the um, uh, Martha Feynman's um, theories about dependency, inevitable dependency, and derivative dependency of care, and society's responsibility to support those forms of dependencies, and a theory of universal vulnerability. All of us need care in different ways at every stage of our lives, from infancy to old age and, and in between. Um, and how can we organize society, both our public and private institutions, to support that need? Um, the reason I think that we can't just think about universal vulnerability and, and move entirely away from identity is to understand the reasons why we don't support care, you need to think about gender and race. So, you know, why is it that the employers don't value care? Um, in part, that's because as, in part because it's women who've done the disproportionate amount of it and that the ideal of the worker has been based on the male model. So if you ignore gender completely, um, you won't really understand the origins or the nature of the social obstacles and political and cultural obstacles to changing the systems in, in which care um, is, is and is not institutionalized. Um, so again, like, why don't we support care publicly? Maybe that's because we have a the availability of a racialized and gendered labor force, many of them immigrant workers, many of them women of color, in the United States, some of whom are working in undocumented conditions and really a, a, a particularly um, precarious workforce um, that can care for cheap. You know, so I do think we need to pay attention to identity in order to understand both how we got to the problems that we have and, and what their nature is in order to make the accurate kinds of critiques and social interventions. But in terms of our aspirations, um, I think we should often keep universal vulnerability in mind. Um, and I do think that Martha's theory acknowledges that there are particularized manifestations of this vulnerability. Um, the risk in thinking of everyone as universal is the same risk I think that feminist critique liberal theorists for, which is that we don't exist in a pre-political state. So people, you know, yes, everyone is vulnerable, but there are some bodies that I think um, experience in the world we have deeper forms of vulnerability because of who they how they're constituted politically. Um, so I I see both as necessary. Like in a truly just world, I think we would keep both identity-based understandings of society and universal vulnerability in mind. Um, and you know, this kind of circles back to my book. What I what I keep trying to highlight in the book is that feminists had two goals. One was maybe an identity-based goal of um, non-discrimination law, ends of stereotyping, individual freedom. Um, and the other was really a recognition of um, universal needs to support social reproduction in part through um, supports for families and in parts through supports for workers. Or 
past our half hour mark and I want to be respectful of your time. Sure. So we'll go ahead and close out. Thank you so much for being here and sharing some of your thoughts with me. I really appreciate that. Good luck it was in fun. your new endeavors. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to work with you and I'll, I'll miss Emery terribly. Um, but uh, I'm also excited for new opportunities. So. Yeah, of course. Well, best wishes. Thank Kamala. you. I know you'll do fabulous things there just as you have here. At Thanks. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.